on this episode of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast. When you smell them, that reminds you of that great time that you had when you were gambling and hopefully won a little bit of money, but also you had this wonderful time in Vegas. You saw all these shows. You had this, you know, such a wonderful, gorgeous resort you were at and so on. And it's going to make you then want to go back, but specifically go back to that particular resort or casino. In Spanish, its name means the meadows. You might know it as the entertainment capital of the world, lost wages, or simply Sin City. Of course, I'm talking about fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. On average, 42 million people visit Las Vegas every year, and I'm one of them. I love this city. The sights, the sounds, the shows, the people, the history. I want to share all of it with you. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is the Jeff Does Vegas Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 79 of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast. Before we get rolling for this episode of the show, I want to thank my guest from the previous episode, David Schwartz, the author of At the Sands, a new book that takes readers on a deep dive into one of the most legendary hotels in the history of Las Vegas. We talked about the Rat Pack and the Sands connection, Howard Hughes's plans for expansion for the hotel what led to the Sands' eventual downfall and implosion, and why the Sands continues to be looked at as a Vegas icon. If you haven't had a chance to listen as of yet, jump into the archives wherever you get your podcasts and search out episode number 78, A Place in the Sun, or head to the website at jeffdoesvegas.com. All right, here we go. On to the show. <laughs> If you've ever been to Las Vegas, you're well aware of the unique scents of the various casinos and hotels up and down the Strip. In fact, if you ask people what one of their favorite parts of going to Vegas is, they'll often tell you it's the smell inside the casinos, and it seems everyone has their preferred casino scent, so much so that there are literally thousands of posts online from people asking how to either purchase or replicate their favorite casino scent. But what's the big deal about smell? Why is the scent of a casino so important that the companies that own them spend literally millions of dollars on the development and distribution of these so-called signature scents? To get the answer to a question like this, I decided to consult an expert. My guest for this episode of the podcast is Dr. Rachel Hers, a world-renowned expert on the psychological science of smell. Dr. Hers is a cognitive neuroscientist, she's a TEDx speaker, and she's a published author of both numerous research publications and several books on the topic of the science of smell. In addition, Dr. Hers has worked as a consultant for multiple international corporations in the development of fragrances and flavors, including Aromasis, the company that was the first to install scent vaporizer systems in the Mirage back in 1991. Dr. Hers and I discussed what got her interested in the psychology of scent, how the sense of smell works, the connection between scent and emotion and memory, and how businesses and corporations can use scent to affect customer behavior. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Rachel Hers. 
was a strange path of least resistance while I was in graduate school. And I did my undergraduate actually at Queen's and had a double major in biology and psychology, sort of ended up at the end uh, doing a thesis in the psychology department, but it was biological psychology and what would be called neuroscience right now. And then when I ended up going to graduate school, I, I had decided that I didn't want to do animal research anymore, which is what I had been doing. I wanted to work with humans. And I was trying to figure out a way to sort of bring the biology psychology concepts together and actually sort of struggling with different topics and different supervisors and trying to find the right niche. And actually I was taking a course, this was at the University of Toronto. I was taking a course during the PhD work and read a paper where the researchers used smell to manipulate mood. And this was totally novel at the time. The traditional methods were verbal and you know, maybe something like with music potentially, but mainly these sort of very, what are called demand characteristic laden kinds of methods where the person really knows what's going on, like try to get into a really good mood or try to get into a bad mood and think about these sad things and so on. And the researchers who wrote about this in the paper gave this detailed kind of evolutionary explanation for why they thought that smell was so perfect at being able to change mood. And since I had been interested in mood and memory, this was something that was going through my, my work up until that point, I sort of had this you know, light bulb go off that studying the sense of smell was a perfect way to marry the biology and the psychology together. And luckily I had a supervisor that didn't care that I didn't do anything that he did. And actually nobody in the department really did anything connected to this at all. And I cobbled together a, a thesis committee and actually drove down to the US uh, with my boyfriend at the time, it was one of those kind of classic crazy trips where we went to visit people in different places, including actually at Brown University, where the person who actually founded the psychological study of smell was, and this is Trey Gengen, who sadly is no longer with us, but he was super wonderful and generous and gave me a huge stack of papers and books. And at the same time, I also went to IFF, which is International Flavors and Fragrances, and they make the aroma chemicals that go into scenting all kinds of things from personal care products to, you know, background aromas used everywhere. And that we still joke about it today about the crazy Canadian graduate student who showed up on their doorstep and said, could you please give me some fragrances I need for my research? And that was the start of the whole beginning of a, of a career. And I mean, we can get into this a little bit more in depth later on, as we talk about the, the, the connection between emotion and memory and, and scent, but, um, was there a, a personal reason for you to choose this as a specialty? Well, there was sort of one more pedantic and one, I guess, more personal one, the more pedantic one was while I was studying for the GREs to get into graduate school, one of the questions on the exam was what sense is most connected to memory? And the answer was a sense of smell. And I asked my supervisor who I was working with at Queens of why that was. And he didn't have an answer for me. It was like, well, it just is. <laughs> and that always really bothered me because I felt like, well, there must be a reason why. And first of all, you know, is, is this also true? And so on. So that kind of stuck in my craw. But I guess also more personally, I've always been a very like, um, sort of in in quotations, sensory or sensual person in the sense that I love, you know, smelling things, touching things. You know, when I was a kid, my mother was always like slapping my hand, stop squeezing the bread, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> um, and 
So I've sort of the idea of studying the senses was definitely kind of there from a personal perspective. And maybe also something from a personal perspective was we moved a lot when I was a kid. And one of the things that stood out for me um, as one of the strange things that uh, it was part of my experiences, although I didn't know it was strange at the time, was that I actually really liked the smell of skunk. And that's because the first time I ever smelled it, we were in the countryside, you know, we're driving along a beautiful bucolic day, and I didn't know what it was. I smell something, my, and my mom from the front seat says, oh, I love that smell. And it turned out it was a smell of skunk. So I love my mother. This is like one of the ways that emotional associations to scent are formed. So in any case, that's why I have such a positive association. And when we were, when I had first moved to Montreal, when I was about seven, I made the grave mistake of saying, you know, I like the smell of skunk. And, you know, children at that age are extremely mean <laughs> and cruel. And I was severely ridiculed, you know, on top of being the weird new kid. And so that was something that I always felt like, you know, it was my shame. And then later on in life, I met other people that liked the smell of skunk too. So it was kind of like this thing about, okay, I'm a, I'm a weirdo smelly person. So now I have some, some connections with other people. So I'm going to go for it. <laughs> it's interesting that you bring up the idea of, um, uh, a positive association with what could be uh, a negative smell. I kind of have a, a, a similar experience or a similar situation uh, with a bunch of books that I inherited from my grandfather when he passed away. Um, I open up those books and I take a big whiff. And for me, that smell is takes me right back to my childhood and the time I spent with them as a kid and, and at their house and on vacation. Whereas my wife to her, it just smells like a musty basement. And in her mind, it's like, you got to air out these books. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's, you're hitting on a, a really important point, which is the connection between how our associations get formed with smell and our personal connections and our childhood associations being especially potent. But the other thing that is important as well is that actually everybody is unique when it comes to their perception of smell and not just because they're past associations but because actually everyone except if you have an identical twin has a somewhat different set of olfactory receptors that are expressed that are detecting the scents that are all around us so a rose is not a rose is not a rose uh, and where this really comes into play is in the differences with respect to intensity that people perceive things so so if people perceive something at a low intensity, they typically don't find it unpleasant. But if they experience at a super intense, like very, very strong, very, very high intensity, whatever it is, it could be a sound, it could be a light and so forth. It is definitely aversive. And the same thing goes for smell. So your wife may, in addition to not having your pleasant associations, also be more sensitive to some of the compounds that are in the smelly books. Um, and so she's detecting something slightly different than you are. Are there any smells that are universally associated or accepted uh, in a positive manner, um, such as maybe say the smell of freshly cut grass or uh, the smell of bacon cooking in the morning, stuff like that. Or is it, as you said, a case of a rose is not a rose is not a rose. Well, actually, so you're bringing up some really good points with your example. So first of all, well, the answer is, I'll just answer it first. So the answer is 
the only scent that's really kind of universally liked is the smell of vanilla. And that is because vanilla is actually a compound in both breast milk and formula. And everyone on the planet has been fed as an infant. And during that feeding, in addition to it being nourishing and nutritious and so forth, it's also a time you're cuddling, you know, the person is holding, your mother is holding you or the caregiver is holding you warmly and tightly. And it's a, it's a loving, positive connection. So regardless of how you were first exposed to vanilla, whether it's in breast milk or in formula, there's a positive connotation and association to that. However, with bacon and fresh cut grass, actually, there is a very wide uh, cultural differences that go along with that, part of which has to do with even experience. So in places where fresh cut grass is not happening, that is to say places where they don't have grass, or like you could imagine living in a city and never even experiencing what that is like, you're not going to have an association to that. It's not going to be something that's necessarily positive. And likewise, with respect to bacon, you know, there are various um, cultures that don't eat bacon that find, you know, pig meat and so forth disgusting, you know, it's not kosher, it's not halal and so forth. And actually the smell of bacon to individuals that have a negative connotation of eating bacon is not necessarily pleasant. There are some people who don't eat bacon that still like the smell, but there are also people who do not like the smell for the emotional associations that they pin on the scent of bacon. And so it really it has to do with your personal experiences. And what I'm bringing up also is how culture really dictates that as well as your own idiosyncratic, unique connection. So we don't have to necessarily smell every scent and have a personal connection to it to decide that we like it or not. If our culture says that it's a good smell, then most likely we go into it for the first time smelling it, liking it or assuming that we like it. And so there's that which has a big influence on us as well. So something I do want to talk about in sort of a, a, a general sense, if you will, how the sense of smell works. And I mean, I'm talking about basic, basic, basic methodology on how the sense of smell works. My wife is the smart one of the two of us. She's the speech pathologist with the master's degree. I'm just the podcast guy who loves going to Vegas. So <laughs> in, in the, the barest, most stripped down way possible, can you explain how that sense of smell works? Okay, I'll give it a try. I've done this a few times. So, you know, hopefully it's coherent. Um, anyhow, so what smells are are chemicals that float through the air. And we have an apparatus called the nose that inside of it has these receptors for detecting those chemicals that float through the air. Now, I should say that not every chemical that floats through the air is something that we can detect and quite Fascinatingly, the chemicals that make up the air that we breathe, so oxygen, helium, nitrogen, and so on, we actually cannot smell them. So it's like the air is a blank canvas on which the other smell chemicals that we do perceive are painted on, which I think is really an interesting kind of a thing. So we don't have interference from the background, as it were. But anyway, so when we inhale through our nostrils, the air that's in the room or wherever we are outside is carrying these various molecules in it. And as long as they have certain characteristics that they can fit into the receptors and, and connect with the receptors, then we can detect them. And actually, theoretically speaking, we can detect over a trillion 
different sense. And of course, though, that's not really physically possible because a trillion seconds is actually 32,000 years. So um, we would never even be able to do it. But theoretically, any chemical out there in the universe, that as long as it meets the criteria of being able to connect with their olfactory receptors, we can detect. Now, that being said, there are, as I already mentioned, a lot of differences in terms of people's sensitivity to specific odor chemicals. And that has to do with the genetics of the olfactory receptors that are different for every person ever so slightly, and the number of copies that you have. And you could also be someone who has ostensibly a normal sense of smell, but you're missing a receptor for a particular kind of compound. And this is the example of, for example, people who hate the smell of cilantro. And it's actually so people who hate the smell of cilantro think it smells like soap and, you know, gross, who would ever want to eat that? It's, you know, terrible. And nobody wants to put that anywhere near their mouth or nose. And I'll, I'll get to explaining why the, what you think when you're eating taste and so forth is really to do with smell. But anyway, the people who think it just smells like soap and it's gross actually are missing the receptor that gives it the beautiful herbaceous quality that people who love the aroma of cilantro, myself, for example, included, why they like it so much. So there are these specific things where you, it's called a specific anosmia, where you could actually be missing just one type of receptor, but everything else is normal. Or you could be um, someone who's super sensitive to a certain kind of chemical, and therefore you need it to be far away from you or at low concentration, or it smells too strong. And so this is what's going on at the very basic level, sort of inside your nose. And then from your nose, um, the part of the brain, which is where the sense of smell is first processed, is called the olfactory bulbs. And it's basically, there are two of them, one for each side of the brain. And they're basically just at the level of your eyebrow, and they're about the size of a blueberry. And this is where the first stage of olfactory processing takes place. And then right after that, which is what gives our sense of smell such a unique and privileged and special connection to emotion and memory, is that the next place that that information from the olfactory bulb goes is right to the limbic system and specifically the amygdala and the hippocampus and that's where both emotion emotional memory and associations take place and none of our other sensory systems have this direct access to those brain areas and that's why associations to smells are so immediately formed and why after they're formed we have this instantaneous kind of emotional response to them, often without being able to put any words on it. And often, you know, at least with respect to the development of the experience, there's no words at first. Sometimes we can get words and sometimes we get a memory that comes back with it, but we can actually kind of exist with smells in pure scape, as it were. And this is also completely different from our other senses where we're analyzing and we're cognitively recognizing like, oh, that's a leaf, that's a tree, that's whatever, uh, where we sometimes can't do that with our sense of smell. And in a way, it's, it's the purest sense in that regard. It's interesting that you mention about how those instantaneous associations are formed. I mean, in my head right now, I'm thinking of all the things and, and maybe not necessarily on a pleasant level, but more on the, the not so pleasant level. I'm thinking about all the things that have those instantaneous emotional reactions. I mean, in my head, I think of, for example, the smell of sour milk or the smell of mm. cat pee and instantly 
it's it's like I can smell it without any of those things actually being here. Well, that's actually pretty remarkable. And I do have to say that this concept of odor imagery, what you're talking about, so in the absence of the sour milk or the cat pee that you can kind of conjure in your mind knows that smell, is something that a lot of people, myself included, would argue is you're not really doing. However, I mean, you're getting like kind of all the associated qualities of it, but not really the smell per se. However, certain people, and especially people that have had a lot of training in smell, like perfumers and so on, and maybe you, I mean, the individual differences with respect to this and people's personal lives, as a function of their extreme sort of training with smell, it does seem that those people may be able to form odor images. So that is to say, you can really smell in your mind's nose, the sour milk, let's say, or if you're a perfumer or something better than that. But that seems to be something that other people, generally speaking, or the average person can't really do. They can get this sort of all the feelings about it and go, oh, I know that's disgusting. And they can visualize the, you know, the sour milk and everything like that. But they don't really have the same smell in the sensory sense as they would if they were literally sticking their nose into the sour milk. Does that make sense to you? Do you, are you, do you truly feel like you can really smell it? You know what? Now that you put it that way, I, I think maybe... I'm not actually smelling it per se, but um, I'm more reliving the reaction to that particular uh, unpleasant scent. Does that make more sense? Yeah, absolutely. And that's totally the case. I mean, often without having to, we can sort of think about smell and have remembered associations because smell is so visceral. So we can really feel like, you know, things that we don't like, especially are easier to do. Because um, just from a biological perspective, we're more attuned to the bad things and especially something that's maybe made us sick in the past. That's something that we want to make sure we stay away from. But the actual conjuring in your mind's nose sensation is very rare. And when it does happen, it seems to be connected to things that are neurologically not so good. So for instance, sometimes people before they get a migraine will have an aura where they can smell something. And that's usually not such a good thing because, you know, from the point of view of there's neurological things going on when you're getting a migraine. Likewise, prior to epilepsy seizures, some people get these sort of smell hallucinations. So it's not like your brain can't do it, but that when it does do it, it's typically something that's not sort of normal from the sort of general perspective. That being said, like I mentioned before, people who are really trained who do this all day long, you know, smelling different things and learning the smells of different things seem to maybe have an ability that the average person doesn't in that being able to volitionally create that sensation just by thinking about it. Is the sense of smell something that people maybe take for granted. I mean, everybody puts so much focus on, um, their hearing or their sight, but I know from a personal side of things, I went through an experience where, uh, following, a, a, a severe sinus infection, I actually completely lost my sense of smell and taste for a period of time. Um, it eventually came back following a period of, a distorted sense of smell and taste, which was not a lot of fun. But after several years of of dealing with that and finally getting back to a, a level of normality, um, I, I have found that I personally, I will never take my sense of smell uh, for granted again. 
Okay, so I love that you told that story. I'm I'm sad that it happened to you, but very glad that you recovered. And first of all, yes, absolutely, people take their sense of smell for granted. And it was actually what motivated me to write my first popular science book called The Scent of Desire was the fact that I was an expert witness um, the first time I'd ever done it, being an expert witness for a case involving the sense of smell, where this woman had lost her sense of smell in a car accident. And actually, the car accident had been pretty severe, but she was all put back together by the time I came in contact with her, except for her sense of smell was in her case permanently lost. And everything about her life had fallen apart and was unraveling in all kinds of really bad ways. And so my role in this particular case was to convince the insurance company that losing her sense of smell was actually something severe and not something trivial, which unfortunately is the presumption of both insurance companies and medical organizations. So for example, with respect to the insurance company program, this is based on what's known as the American Medical Association's value of life's worth on losing various you know, body parts and functions and so forth. And just to give you an example, the sense of, of sight is valued at 85% of your life's worth in terms of if you were going to file a lawsuit because you became blind and you were calculating, let's say, how much lost income you would have because you couldn't do your previous job, then the insurance company would be, since they're using those metrics, obligated to, let's say, or if they're following that, say, okay, well, 85% of what you would have made, you know, that would be the insurance claim. With the sense of smell, what the American Medical Association gives it is between one to 5% of your life's worth. So basically, practically nothing. And Yet that is so, so, so untrue. And I've been involved in a number of cases like this since then, demonstrating how actually every aspect of one's life from social, sexual, personal, cognitive, sense of self, quality of life, health and safety, absolutely everything is is really detrimentally impacted and unfortunately gets worse over time rather than stabilizing or getting better. Now, the other thing I want to say about your example of your upper respiratory tract infection has to do with COVID-19, which I don't know if you know, but there's actually loss of smell is a very important symptom with respect to this diagnostically. And I've been involved in a study recently where we found that loss of smell actually preceded a positive diagnosis of COVID-19 by two days. But in, an, but in addition to that, there are people who, many people recover their sense of smell after the infection clears up, but there are other people who've had persistent smell loss and other people, again, who have this distorted sense of smell, like you're mentioning. They, they get their sense of smell back, but it's not good. It doesn't, things don't smell good and not like they used to. Now, the encouraging news is that if we, were, if we assume that COVID is like other upper respiratory tract infections, where there typically is over a period of time recovery of the sense of smell, then the good news is that people will get their sense of smell back. But you know, given that COVID is sort of so new, and as in your case, it can sometimes take years, there are a lot of people that are very disturbed and upset right now about this loss of smell. And even during the illness itself, I've been contacted by people who've had COVID pretty badly, like obviously not to the point where they're, you know, really, really, really sick and so forth, but who had, you know, all the other symptoms pretty badly and said that their loss of sense of smell was actually the worst experience of the whole illness. So 
it is one of those things that as soon as you lose it, you realize how actually extremely important it was. And this woman that I was the expert witness for in this first case was really beside herself because she said, you know, she had always taken her sense of smell for granted and had no idea how much it was involved in everything and really, really lamented the fact that she had always ignored it and never appreciated it before. So Actually, my motivation in writing that first book was to get people to appreciate and realize how wonderful their sense of smell is and to you know, take the time to stop to smell the roses. So, you know, if I can give anything as a bottom line, you know, use your nose while you can, because <laughs> we all get older and we, we tend to, you know, decrease our sensitivity by just aging like we do with our other senses. Yeah. I mean, I, I can honestly say it was it was one of the most difficult times of my life to go through that. I, I mean... I'm a person who loves to wake up to the smell of coffee. That that was that was my thing for so long. And while I was going through the the distorted sense of smell, I could barely drive past a Starbucks or a, or a Tim Hortons or or whatever equivalent coffee shop in the U.S. Um, without wanting to vomit. It was that bad for me. And, and the other weird thing about it was. Um, it was worse when it was a dispersed smell, if that makes sense. Like I could stick my nose right into a cup of coffee and take a big whiff and no problem. But if I was far away and it was up in the air, it, it was, it was absolutely horrific. Well, that's actually really interesting. And, you know, um, I don't know that much about the sort of clinical like experience that you're reporting, like in terms of is it more the case that when people have these distortions that it's when it's diluted in a lot of airspace, for example, compared to when you're just like really embedded in it. So that's actually something which I would love to look into more now that you've mentioned this, if there is any data kind of about the fact that it's maybe the contamination with other smell molecules that are out there that then wash out let's say the coffee aroma and maybe there is like some tiny bit of onion smell in the background let's just say and you're just picking that up instead or somehow the interaction of different smell compounds in the air causes this to happen so that's something i'm gonna have to look into after this is over <laughs> i'm gonna ask some people that i know about this look at me uh, a weird medical freak of nature <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe not. I mean, maybe this is what people normally experience. I mean, that's what I like to look into um, because I think that would be in and of itself really interesting. Like if you were just exposed to the one scent, then that might be okay. But if it's diluted with a lot of other scents, maybe that's where the problem comes in. I mean, that could help people in terms of trying to resolve this um, distortion, which is called parosmia in technical medical terms. That could help them in terms of maybe recovering from this. If we know that if you just, let's say, for example, stick your nose in coffee a whole bunch of times, maybe that would help you get that real coffee aroma back even when you're, uh, you know, 100 feet from the Starbucks. I look forward to hearing about that research because again, that's something that, that it affected me in such a huge way. Like I, and I can see where, where the, the person that you were working with can is coming from on this, because for me, it, it I slipped into, I don't want to say a deep depression, but again, as a fat kid who loved to eat and, and loved to drink coffee, thank God. One of the only things that didn't smell or taste bad was beer. I, that, that was fantastic. <laughs> I was so happy about that. I thought, I thought if beer and barbecued steak goes bad for me, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> Oh, well, very good. So, well, good. I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that. But yeah, I mean, actually this person 
the first person I worked with, and this is the case for everyone I've worked with, a deep depression is exactly what sets in. And not just because it's like lamenting the loss, but actually because of the neurobiology between smell and emotion processing in the brain, when one side of that equation starts to misfire, as it were, malfunction, the other side is negatively impacted. And something that's really interesting, so not only does loss of sense of smell actually create depression that actually unfortunately continues to worsen over time, but when people who have major depression are in a major depressive episode, their sense of smell becomes much weaker. And so there really is this very fascinating bi-directional relationship between our sense of smell and our emotional health. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Um, Rachel, I brought you on here today because I wanted to talk to you about the, the scent in Las Vegas. And I'm not talking about the, the smell of desperation and, and lost money and stale nicotine hanging in the air of, of the casinos. Everybody who's been to Vegas knows that all of these casinos and hotels and resorts, they all have a, a very distinct smell. And as anybody who's a bit of a Vegas insider knows, nothing in Vegas happens by accident. This is all on purpose. So I guess the big question that's on my mind here is how can and how do businesses use scent to influence their, their customers or their guests? Well, there actually is a big area of what's known as scent marketing, and I have done consulting for a number of different kinds of companies on this exact topic. And the two ways that this sort of works is, one, to create an, an ambience that connects the experience of whatever the product is or the environment is with the smell that's in the air to enrich the experience. So that is to say, I'm going to make this a much deeper, more powerful, more profound experience by adding in smell that works with whatever the merchandise is or whatever the concept is. And that will make people buy more or spend more or whatever. And the other is to create these sort of scent logos in a way or signature scents where after you've let say, and this works more with the resort or the casino concept than let's say with a clothing store, but if you were, for instance, there was the scent of a particular casino and let's say also the bath products and the hotel room was scented with those sorts of things too. And then you have that unique scent signature that's connected to that particular resort. When you either steal those bath products and bring them back home with you and then sniff them again, or if you buy the products that are connected, there are, you know, you can, you can purchase the sort of sprays and so forth, as you pointed out to me, of uh, various casinos, that when you smell them, that reminds you of that great time that you had when you were gambling and hopefully won a little bit of money, but also you had this wonderful time in Vegas. You saw all these shows, you had this, you know, such a wonderful, gorgeous resort you were at and so on. And it's going to make you then want to go back, but specifically go back to that particular resort or casino. So you build this sort of brand affiliation and brand association where when the person goes back home to regular life, they can be reminded of that specific experience and that particular casino with scent and then want to reinvest as it were in that property and go back there again. It's interesting that you say that because I've had that exact experience where I've been standing somewhere, whether I'm in a store or, or on a train or wherever, and somebody walks by me and they're wearing a perfume and instantaneously, it's like, 
that smells like Aria. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll give you a personal experience and not to necessarily plug the win, but the win and Encore Castino Resort is actually where my husband and I first stayed before we were married and when we, where we stayed when we got married and where we always stay. And of course it also has a signature scent and they've changed. Um, they've actually changed it from what it was originally when we were first there. But when I was first there, uh, the first couple of times we went there, I, of course, did seal the soap and the shampoo and the conditioner and body lotion and so forth. Um, and I have it still to this day. And in fact, I just opened up a, a new bar recently because of exactly that, you know, it, especially right now. I can't go to Vegas and would love to. In fact, my husband and I were just kind of talking about this the other day about, oh, I can't believe it's been three years since we've been there because we tend to go um, at least every you know year or two, at least that's been the tradition so far. And having that scent was sort of a nice little reminder. And that is something that I deliberately did because you know I know about this connection. Uh, and um, you know that is part of the whole sequence where this is what people do. Now, are there, and we kind of hit on this a little bit earlier in regards to the whole idea of, of pleasant smells, memory and emotion and things like that. But when it comes to these um, scent logos or signature scents, are there certain smells that are more effective than others? Well, the one thing that is important, I mean, one of the things to say is that it's, it's important to have a scent that's not like another scent because you want to be distinctive. Um it's also the case that somehow you need to make your scent perceived as thematically congruent with the merchandise, as it were. So in a clothing store, for example, if I use this, it's easier. You could imagine that a high-end men's clothing store, for example, might have a, a scent of clean, fresh linen in the, in the store, and that that would connect with the merchandise that's being sold. And that customers would then form this kind of connection in their mind. And like that would sort of, that not only would sort of, this has actually been shown, heighten the perceived quality of the clothing and increase how much people are willing to spend when they're in the store. Now, if I took a smell that people liked just as much as clean, fresh, fresh linen, like I evaluated these scents ahead of time and I had people rate how much they like them, clean, fresh linen scores, whatever. And then I have another scent, let's call it, um, some combination of fresh cut grass and let's say coconut and people liked it just as much. And I have that in my high-end men's clothing store. People are going to be like, what is this? I mean, it's nice, I guess, but it doesn't fit at all with the merchandise being sold. And so actually that backfires. People stay in the space less uh, length of time, which also leads to less spending. And it certainly does not increase the perceived value of what's being sold. And in fact, it can decrease the perceived value. So the very important thing is to somehow create this idea of thematic congruence between what is being sold and what the scent in the air is. Now with a casino or a resort, because it's more on the sort of aspirational concept level, um, it can be somewhat more difficult than when you're dealing with concrete merchandise like clothing. However, uh, it can also be the case that, you know, you can, you can hit upon it for a certain segment of the population that's visiting your, your resort, but miss the mark with others. So, I mean, this is one of the problems also with, even with the clothing store example, is that depending upon my demographic, you know, let's say 
people in their men in their fifties are going to go, yes, that clean, fresh linen smell is totally the scent that works for me. And I'm going to spend more money on this, you know, shirt and suit and so on. But maybe someone who's 20 who walks in there is like, no, no, no. You know, for me, the clean flesh linen is not, not working. You know, the scent that I associate with crisp quality clothing is let's say a citrus smell, because that's the scent of, let's say the laundry detergent that I connect with high class clothing. So one of the problems that that places who use scent marketing have is trying to figure out what the right smell is for the concept and also hitting the mark with their key demographic. And so those are sort of the ingredients that go into figuring out what the right scent for the right environment is. Well, and I was just going to ask about the risk associated with creating these these signature scents, because as as you alluded to earlier, and as we discussed, not everyone enjoys the same sense and there's different levels of scent sensitivity. I mean, the risk could be that you you put this scent in the air and as you say, you could drive people out, even if those people are in your key demographic to that degree, you could almost say it's better to not have a signature scent. I agree. Um, And that's actually can be a real problem. And, you know, one of the things also that I would say, just as a kind of a cautionary note, I mean, everything in Vegas is, is extreme, you know, big, bold, loud, you know, huge colors, huge, you know, everything. And one of the issues that I would say is a caution to resorts and casinos using this is to not have their smell too strong. I mean, the problem is it does have to mask the, the smell of, you know, disappointment and body odor and maybe stale cigarette smoke, you know, not in casinos most of the time these days, but nevertheless, it has to cover up some negative odors and maybe also compete with the aromas coming from restaurants or the food court and so on. But at the same time, if it's too strong, and especially in terms of the first impression, let, let's say when people are first walking into the lobby area of a resort, if they're blasted too much with scent, then that sort of intensity could actually be negative, even if at a lower intensity, they might like it. And this is not even taking into consideration the fact that certain individuals are going to be particularly sensitive to aspects of the of the bouquet and others are going to be less so. So Less is actually more, although you have to sort of walk a fine line if you're trying to cover up, you know, other scents that you don't want people to smell. It's funny that you say that because I always found uh, there's two resorts and casinos in Vegas that always kind of struck me with that. One was the Cromwell and the second one was Caesar's Palace. And my wife, Mm -hmm. who's not particularly scent sensitive, um, other than to my grandfather's musty old books, um, we would always comment when we would walk into Caesar's Palace. I always said it felt like you were being slapped in the nostrils. Yeah. So that's a good example. And, and I don't know to the extent that you, I mean, so did your wife have the same impression or did she not? To a slightly less degree. But for me, it was always just like, as soon as you walk through that door, bam, there was the Caesar smell. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it's a weird balance of that because you were kind of ready for it and you, it didn't really affect you in a super negative way because you're like, Hey, I'm in Vegas. I'm at Caesar's palace. But at the same time, it was like, Oh, they need to dial this down at just a couple of notches. Yeah. So I think you're actually hitting on two really good and important marks there. One of them is that 
you know, when you're in Vegas, you're generally in a good mood. You're, you're ready for a good time. You're there because it's a holiday vacation. You're going to have fun. You're going to party, whatever the case is. So your emotional state that you're connecting with the scent that's there is really good. And so the scent is going to become good because of the emotional state you're in. And yet at the same time, exactly what you're saying, that is something if it's too strong is just a little unpleasant because it's too strong. And so I do think that sort of the dialing it down is an important thing to do. And one thing, unfortunately, that a lot of companies do when I speak to them, I always say, you know, you need to actually do a little bit of testing. You can't just go, okay, I think this is a good idea. Let's go for it. So you need to actually assess, you know, do, does the, you know, on average people walking through that door, do they feel like you, do they feel like, you know, turn it down, in which case they should turn it down. (laughs) Um, So that's something to consider. I mean, one of the other things is that in terms of adaptation, I mean, we all, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on what the situation is, lose our ability to detect an odor after we've spent any amount of time sort of with it. So you walk into Caesar's Palace, and you're like, bam, there's that scent, really intense. But probably after about 20 minutes, you're barely detecting it anymore. And the more scent that's there, um, they can have like kind of a dual effect. It's at one level, you don't adapt to it as quickly because it's so, so there uh, that you can still smell it for, let's say, a longer period of time than if there was a very weak smell in the room that you would more quickly adapt to. But from the point of view of kind of the long-term effect of that, losing the sensitivity to it, that can actually be stronger. So you do want people to be able to still smell that scent. Like let's say they they go out and then they, you know, come back in and you want them to be able to smell that again. You want them to be able to smell it, you know, just as strongly um, for let's say the week that they're in Vegas as the first time they walked in. Because if by the end of the week you don't smell anything anymore, that's also a bad thing. So if it's too strong, that might happen although I know most people don't spend a week there. Um, (laughs) But still, if people were there for a longer period of time, you'd want the smell to be as intense on Friday as it was on Sunday. And so if it's too strong, that may also decrease more than you would want it to. So there is a fine balance and, and resorts and casinos need to actually do some boots on the ground, real testing to find out like where the perfect amount of intensity is. It's interesting that you say that because yeah, there are other casinos and and resorts on the strip that uh, you can walk into and it's much more subtle. Like for example, um, the Flamingo, I always find you walk in there, you kind of get that first little, just slight whiff of the, I always say it kind of smells almost like the old copper tone coconut uh, suntan lotion, but you get that first whiff and then maybe every once in a while you get the odd little whiff of it as opposed to as i say caesar's palace where you walk in and it's like you're getting kicked in the nostrils right and i think it's i mean it's interesting like what kind of impression the difference between those sense is making i mean there's also kind of a big conceptual difference between the flamingo and caesar's palace and maybe also a demographic difference in terms of the patrons who prefer one versus the other and so on so so there is kind of a, an interesting combination of difference going on and how the individual who goes into it perceives it. So, you know, and that's something that the casino itself should be thinking about when they, you know, set up whatever scenting they're going to have. 
Well, Rachel, this has been incredibly eye-opening for me and incredibly fascinating. And I'm sure my listeners have found it um, just as fascinating. And I just want to thank you for taking time to jump on with me here today and chat all about the amazing world of the science and psychology of scent. Well, Jeff, this has been really fun to talk to you, and I really appreciate you inviting me on. If you want to learn more about the science and psychology of smell and scent, visit Dr. Herz's website at rachelherz.com and follow her on Twitter at Rachel underscore hers. You can also pick up one of her books, The Scent of Desire, Discovering Our Enigmatic Sense of Smell, Why You Eat What You Eat, The Science Behind Our Relationship with Food, or That's Disgusting, Unraveling the Mysteries of Repulsion. You can find those via your favorite bookseller. And of course, I'll have all these links and more in the show notes at jeffdoesvegas.com. And that wraps up yet another episode of the podcast. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas. You can also email me directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know as soon as new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit JeffDoesVegas.com for past episodes and show notes. My name is Jeff, and this has been episode number 79 of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast. Podcast.